Hi, this is Warren Budvinick, bringing you another episode of Help with Parkinson's number 13. Our guest today is Dr. Subramanian from Hershey Medical Center, and we're talking about podcast number 12, where we had an individual patient talk about his experience getting deep brain stimulation. And Dr. Sub is going to concentrate on the average person instead of just one person's experience, what the average person could experience. Dr. Sub, uh, welcome to the program. Thank you, Warren. Thanks for having me here. Okay, so um, you heard, you listened to the, the broadcast, and uh, it's one man's opinion, and we want to give a little bit of the, the average person's opinion would be. Right. So the average experience with DBS, again, depends on um, what stage of disease they are and what, what's the indication for which they are getting operated on. So um, the two major causes for doing deep brain stimulation in Parkinson's disease, uh, one of it is a very severe tremor that does not respond to any medication. And what we call uh, overflow tremor, tremor that continues even when you're doing things, when you're riding, shaving, grooming, etc. So in typical regular Parkinson's disease, a rest tremor is what happens. And rest tremor usually stops when you start do- using the hand. You use the hand for something, then the rest tremor usually stops. Um, however, in some individuals, especially younger onset Parkinson's patients who have a lot of tremor, uh, some of them don't respond well to medication or they respond inadequately to medication in the controlling of their tremor. And we're talking about trauma that actually interferes with their day-to-day work, you know, like writing, uh, using the mouse, using the computer, or shooting a gun, or any of those type of tasks. Now, such individuals uh, may be selected for DBS. Uh, another type of person who might be selected for DBS are people who develop complications from therapy. So there are, are on Parkinson's medication, and as a result of taking medication, they develop side effects. And uh, one example of uh, a very bad side effect could be uncontrollable dyskinesias, uh, these involuntary movements that uh, Michael J. Fox has, which looks like uh, dance-like movements. And that can be quite severe in some individuals. And those severe side effects are difficult to control, meaning uh, they don't control with um, adjustment of medications or addition of other medicines. In such individuals, again, DBS may be an option. So these are the two real big reasons why people go for DBS is that um, either they have severe uncontrollable tremor that is not medication responsive or poorly controlled by medications, or they have severe medication-induced complications that uh, limits the amount of medication that can be used. Those are the patients that we typically um, select for deep brain stimulation. There are other indications, but these two are kind of the main ones. So I'm going to focus on these two main ones. And uh, typically what happens is that a patient is seen by a movement disorder doctor, and movement disorder doctor usually um, carefully weighs the pros and cons of the deep brain stimulation surgery. And they look at many things. One, have they tried everything possible medically to control symptoms? And again, it doesn't mean that you push this forever and ever. If you try a certain set of combination of medicines for a certain period of time. So, for example, uh, you've tried uh, controlling tremor uh, with medications for a year or two and still just not successful. uh, And this tremor is really disabling. We might recommend such a person to go for surgery. 
but it also depends on whether they were compliant, they took their medicines properly, and whether they actually followed through and came to the doctor for periodic visits. So that's one indication. The other indication, again, as I said already, that if they are having medication-induced complications, again, the doctor would really carefully evaluate to see is everything done, everything optimized, everything correctly given, and all the medications being taken correctly. And they're still having severe uncontrollable dyskinesia, well, then again, they may be um, interested to go for um, TBS surgery. Then what we do is, if we are in agreement that this patient has to have TBS, then we do a quick neuropsychological evaluation by the bedside in the office. So this is to check whether the person has um, any cognitive, any memory-related deficits, any depression, or any other major contraindication for undergoing surgery. We'll also check um, blood to make sure that there are no bleeding disorders and make sure that there are good surgical candidates. Oftentimes, we may even get an MRI scan of the brain just to be sure that there is nothing there structurally that would prevent the surgeon from operating. After this is all done, this is sort of a pre-screening is done, then we would refer the patient to the surgeon. And then the surgeon would do a similar evaluation. A surgeon would look at our records, also see the patient, look at the MRI, look at the surgical risks, and so on and so forth. And then typically, there is also what we call a formal neuropsychological evaluation. This is seen by a PhD scientist. They would spend three to four hours testing detailed neuropsychological function, uh, for example, thinking, memory, um, uh, math, calculation abilities, planning abilities, etc., in, in good amount of detail. And they would compare the patient to their peers. You know, they would have numbers and scores, and they would look at that, and they would say, okay, this person looks like a decent candidate. Or they might say, hey, there are certain risks. If we did operation on this person, this may, person may develop more memory problems, so on and so forth. So based on all this information, we would sit around the table and just sort of discuss what the pros and cons of surgery is. And then we usually present this to the patient. And the presentation could either happen in the neurologist's office or could happen in the neurosurgeon's office, or sometimes it's a combined neurology-neurosurgery joint presentation to the patient, depending on the complexity of the case. At that point, we uh, explain what would be the good reason to go forward and what's a good reason not to go forward. Or sometimes we might say, oh, let's wait for some more time and let's see whether we can get a better idea of whether we need to operate on you or not. We always encourage, whenever we do any kind of invasive procedures, that they seek um, a second opinion if they feel strongly about seeking a second opinion. We also give opportunities for the patient to talk to others who have undergone surgery. And that's an important aspect, and I want to focus a little bit on talking to other people who have undergone surgery. One thing that the listeners here have to pay, pay close attention is the only people who actually will come and talk to you are generally people who have already done well in surgery. People who did poorly, who had major complications, who had a stroke, who had a bleed, who had cognitive impairment, were in nursing homes, they're not going to be able to come and talk to you. Okay, so because of this, there's always a little uh, trepidation when you get information only from one side. You also need to get the other side of the equation. That's where your doctor becomes really important. Your medical doctor is likely to give you the most 
truthful, honest opinion on what the risks are. Of course, you can also look it up in the literature. You can see it, uh, records and you can also uh, read up on it in good, authentic sources to see what are the risks for complications. And uh, let's see the small uh, dotted lines that are there, uh, small fine print that is there on what complications that happen. Now, you will also see this information when the surgeon makes you sign what they call a consent form. And usually the surgeon will ask you to sign a piece of paper where they say these are the risks for your surgery. This is an opportunity where you should certainly ask the surgeon how many cases they have done themselves and what are their surgical risks in their hands, how many people have had complications of one kind or the other. And most surgeons who are authentic will tell you and they'll give you an honest opinion. They'll say, I've done X number of cases and X number of problems have occurred. And this number of patients have had serious issues. Some of them are trivial. If the surgeon is not able to give you specifics and not able to give you good numbers, typically that means that you should shop around. You should check with your other colleagues and other doctors to see whether you can get authentic good numbers to do the surgery. So um, once you have done that due diligence check and you've talked very frankly with your doctors, should also talk to your family members. You also need to talk to your family doctor who might know your general health issues in a much broader sense than what a neurologist or the neurosurgeon might know. So having all these people's information is critically important. And then um, you still need to continue your Parkinson medicines exactly like the doctor told you to do until the day the surgery arrives. Now, the surgery is very similar to what you heard the other gentleman talk uh, last week in the podcast. But for those who missed that podcast, typically we ask patients to come either previous night or first thing in the morning. And depending on the surgeon's preference, and different surgeons do it differently, but uh, some surgeons like to do what we call placement of fiducials. What that means is that um, they take a small area of the scalp, make a small incision, tiny incision. The incision is about the size of a uh, pinhole, literally. And through that, they place screws into the skull. And they typically place four screws. Now, the screws have inside them a contrast agent. And after placing the screws, then we send you over to uh, the MRI scanner and get an MRI done. Now, what's the purpose of putting these screws? The screws actually tell us in three dimension where your brain is in relation to the outside. And uh, then we send off that MRI and the measurements to company. And there are many companies who do this, but one of the well-known companies is a company called FHC. It goes out to them. And um, the patient is then discharged. They will go home. And two or three weeks later, they come back for the actual operation. At the time when they come for the operation, using the MRI, which had the screws in place, and the imagery that was provided to them, the company usually builds what we call a custom frame. The custom frame is customized to the patient. It allows us to target the lead, the uh, DBS lead, correctly into the brain. Now, on the day of the surgery, they typically come first thing in the morning again. We admit them. Um, we do the usual preparation. The anesthesiologist talks to you, uh, makes you comfortable. 
um, may give you a, a small tranquilizer or something to make you relax if you need be. And then the surgery starts. And usually the surgery is done with patient awake. Uh, and then we um, attach the frame that was provided by the company to the four screws that was placed two weeks ago. And then um, using that device, then we'll make a new incision exactly where we need to put the electrode into the brain. And this is all done under local anesthesia. So we are numbing up the skin so that the uh, patient doesn't feel any pain. And there will be some noise and some sounds of people talking and chatting, but usually this is not too loud. This is actually quiet. There's some music playing. Usually the anesthesiologist is talking to you throughout the entire procedure. There are other staff members who are reassuring you and keeping you comfortable during the entire procedure. The position of the patient is typically uh, sort of semi-sitting, semi-laying down. So it's not entirely flat. It's uh, sort of halfway between sitting and laying down. But again, very comfortable. There are cushions and the seat is well padded and uh, we make sure that you are not in any pain during the entire procedure. And then the surgeon will drill a very small hole through the skull, again under local anesthesia. And after this, we will put an electrode. Electrode is basically a piece of wire that goes into the brain through which we can listen to what area of the brain we need to go to. Now, this is a very unique thing. We don't do this in a lot of other types of surgery, but in this surgery, certainly it's a very helpful tool because you can actually go into the brain and listen to the part of the brain from where these abnormal signals are coming that we want to kill or reduce using the DPS. And this procedure is called electrophysiology. So we map using electrophysiology the part of the brain where we think we should put the electrode. This procedure typically takes about 15, 20, 30 minutes. Some cases you may have to do more than one track. So you might have to go in more than once into that track. But using very thin needles, the needle is um, thinner than a pencil lead. In fact, it's probably uh, one-eighth the size of a pencil lead. Very, very thin needle that's going into the brain. And we can listen to the brain while we go in there, and we can actually find the area that we want to put this electrode in. And then once we have already mapped, and the surgeon is happy with it, the neurologist is happy with it, the neurophysiologist is happy with it, then we exchange the recording electrode to a stimulating electrode. So the stimulating electrode is slightly bigger. And unlike the recording electrode, which took information from the brain into the outside, this one will actually pass current into the brain. So this will then be placed in the correct position. And after it's placed in the correct position, we connect it to what we call an intraoperative stimulator. So here we actually connect it to a machine which looks exactly the one that is you're going to go home with, and then we turn it on. And the nice thing about this is you can actually see what's going to happen when you turn the electrode on. So we turn the electrode on, we see what happens, and typically we can see, especially when we do SDN surgery, subthalamic nucleus surgery for deep brain stimulation, we can usually see the effect acutely in the operating room. So if the patient has tremor, the tremor gets better, and if the finger movements are slow, the finger movements become faster, etc. The patient can also experience the immediate benefits of the uh, actual surgery. And typically, you can see that there is some improvement, some betterment of the symptoms right away. So when this is finished, 
and we know for sure we have put the electrode in the right place, then uh, we usually put the patient to sleep because now we don't no longer need the patient to be awake. We want the patient to rest, so we'll give them a mild tranquilizer to let them go to sleep. And then essentially the surgeon will close the wound, uh, anchor the electrode correctly in the correct position, and then um, they will put a small bandage on the scalp and typically, within 24 hours after the surgery, if there are no complications, the patient is discharged. They go home. And then two weeks later, they come back. And in the second half of the surgery, which is really very, very short, typically half hour to less than half hour, sometimes maybe maximum one hour, we put the patient again to sleep. But this time, they don't experience any, uh, anything at all. They just go to sleep. And when they're asleep, we actually Uh, put the stimulator, the little battery device, battery-operated device that's going to put current into the brain. This is placed uh, usually typically in the chest. Um, In the chest, you make a small incision. You uh, put this device underneath the chest. And then you connect the wires that you put in the scalp, uh, tunnel it under the skin, and connect it to the battery device that you put in the front of the chest. So this is the second part where you actually put the stimulator in place And then again, we sew it up and the patient is discharged. So this procedure, the second procedure, is usually a day in and out, meaning you come in the morning, get the operation, same day you leave after a few hours, uh, typically by afternoon you go home. Now, with this, the surgery is completed. So now the first part and second part of the surgery is over. The patient is now discharged. And typically, patient is asked to come to see the neurologist Um, or in some cases the neurosurgeon, but typically it's the neurologist who does the programming, approximately a month from the time when the original lead was placed. Now, why do you wait for a month? And uh, this was alluded to by the the patient who talked on uh, last Friday, uh, last Sunday, sorry. And uh, this is called the lesion effect. So the lesion effect is because when you stick a needle or stick an electrode into the subthalamic nucleus, acutely, as soon as you put it there, there's a little bit of swelling, a little bit of inflammation around the tip of the electrode. And that inflammation typically causes a small uh, dysfunction of the neurons there. The neurons are temporarily not working very well. So this lesion effect could be either beneficial, which is the case, most of the time it is beneficial, but it's short-lived. It only lasts for about a month or so. You want that beneficial effect to go away because that's not a long-living, long-lasting solution. And we want to wait until the body comes back to a more stable baseline, and then you start programming. And that also is more representative of what happened in the operating room because in the operating room, you put the lead into the brain, and acutely there's no inflammation because it just happened. And that's really what we want to recreate. And so that only happens about a month later after the brain has adjusted, the inflammation has resolved, the swelling has resolved. That's when we do the programming. The last part is regarding programming. The programming itself is fairly short if everything goes well. However, if programming um, is complicated in patients who have um, a very difficult operation or have a difficult targeting, or have symptoms that are not easy to resolve, then you may have to do programming more than once. You may have to program 
once, twice, three times, or four times. So this gives you a summary of the, um, the thought process, the logic, and the actual flow of events that an average DBS person goes through. I'm going to pause here and just ask Warren to ask more questions because I want to address some of the other issues that came up from the previous uh, speaker. Okay. Um, the previous speaker mentioned that the doctor wanted to do the surgery fairly early in his uh, in in the time it takes to to actually get it done. Normally, people wait till they they can't function. Mm-hmm. But, but his doctor was saying to do it early because it's going to progress anyway. Mm-hmm. Is it is it is it the average person that progresses quickly within six months, or is that the doctor maybe noticed something a little bit different for this patient? Right. So this was not very clear from the previous speaker's story. Um, uh, that he gave a very very strong history of being seen by. Uh, some of the leaders in the field um, in Houston at Baylor College, Dr. Joe Jankovic, who's a very highly respected movement disorder specialist. Um, he apparently saw the patient and made a diagnosis and gave him recommendations. And again, in Hopkins, he was seen by Dr. Mari, who's also a fine neurologist and um, movement disorder specialist, who also gave him recommendations. So it wasn't entirely clear why they recommended early surgery. Um, at least from the DBS literatures thus far, um, there is no strong evidence that if you do the surgery earlier than it's required, it has any specific advantage. It is true that if you delay unnecessarily, it does cause problems because as you get further and further in your disease, your general health status would be worse, A. You will also be older, and this would really make you more vulnerable to complications. So it is true that if you unnecessarily delay the surgery, it, you could ha- have some disadvantage. But it doesn't necessarily mean that if you do it earlier than what is required, it is advantageous. So bottom line, I think, is to do it when it's right. And they, clearly, clearly, you will want to get input from your uh, specialist movement disorder doctors to say, when is it right to have the surgery? And as I mentioned before in the earlier segment uh, that we were talking about, what are the clear indications? If you have adequately tried medications uh, under close supervision from a movement disorder specialist, and you and the doctor come to a conclusion that no matter what you've done, the beneficial effects of the medicine is not apparent. And this is to be done very carefully because a lot of other things can happen in Parkinson's like depression and anxiety and stressors and other medications that you may take for other conditions. You have to take all those things into consideration. And if the doctor and the patient are together coming to an idea that, yes, we have done everything possible. We have not missed any T's or missed any I's that we have forgot to cross or dot. Well, then I think you are ready for surgery and then you should proceed for surgery. Uh, similarly, if you have medication-induced complications, and again, all the T's are crossed and all the I's are dotted, carefully vetted, and the doctor and the patient together feel that, there's nothing going to happen here, I better go off to surgery, yes, you should get the surgery. So that carefully, careful vetting process where you're really paying close attention is critical and necessary. Again, going back to the previous speaker from last week about his patient experience, it must have been something unique. And we really didn't get a handle on what exactly was unique about his 
medical condition that progressed fairly rapidly within six months to a year that went from fairly well-controlled um, uh, symptoms to needing surgery or him being convinced that he needed to have surgery rather than to wait any longer. That wasn't very clear, uh, but I'm sure the doctors uh, thought through it carefully before they advocated uh, the treatment. One other little caveat, which I wasn't very clear either, was um, why he was taking Stelevo, carbidopa, levodopa, entacopone, every two hours. Um, this medication typically is not designed to be given every two hours. Carbidopa, levodopa can be given every two hours, or it can even be given every hour. But the entacopone part, the third component of it, which is part of Stelevo, is typically only given every four hours. Uh, it is not given every hour or every two hours. It would be very unusual to be given that drug that frequently. So again, that raises a question whether uh, inadvertently the correct dosing was not discussed or whether it was really part of uh, something else. So anyway, um, that's where we were with the, with the uh, story. And uh, personally, I think uh, these type of details uh, has to be explored as individual patient to doctor rather than uh, give me, me giving a generic advice. So these are very individual questions on when uh, medications have been optimized or sub are suboptimal. But anyway, the point that Warren brought up, a good one, typically most patients who are stable don't deteriorate very quickly uh, over a six-month period or a year. It's typically much more longer, two to three-year periods. Slow deterioration is what we see when we decide to go from no surgery to surgery. Okay, how about uh, one side versus two sides of the brain? Has is, is that evolved to a standard? Right, that's a great question. That's a very, very good question. There are many, many, many surgeons who strongly feel that they should do only one side at a time. There are others who feel strongly that they can do both surgeries on both sides simultaneously and be done with it. This is, again, very much an evolving science, and uh, there is no real compelling evidence one way or the other. Obviously, doing both sides together has economic advantage. You have single operation, single site, single time, come in and get the whole thing done. Um, and this is also similar. This is also an important question as to whether you do all of it in one go, you know, because apparently the speaker from last week he had his experience as a single surgery. He didn't get the fiducials. He didn't get the MRI. He didn't get the customized frame, et cetera. Um, he just came in, had anesthesia. Under anesthesia, he had the DBS done. And it was just going and sleep and wake up and you're done. That kind of experience. Um, there are uh, pros and cons for both approaches. I would say at the present time, most surgeons and most neurologists and most movement disorder specialists very strongly feel that having the patient awake is important and being able to do electrophysiology, basically having a mapping of the brain with the patient awake is critical and important to get the best results because if you don't do that, then uh, you're basically just using only one tool, which is the MRI. And even though MRI has gotten really good at it, uh, we still don't have a second uh, guidance clue. You only have one guidance. You don't have the second guidance, which is the electrophysiology. So most people feel that you're having both is a major advantage and improves your accuracy and being able to do this procedure uh, much more um, 
precisely and helping the patient. Uh, but then again, um, there are others who strongly feel that the MRI is good enough and uh, MRI-guided surgery can give you just as good results. Now, I will throw this small caveat. In some situations, you have to choose to not do electrophysiology because if you are high risk for bleeding, for example, um, if there is already some risk that if you stay in the brain longer than what you're required to, you're going to be vulnerable. Or if you have a cardiac condition, heart condition, where the anesthesiologist says, uh, we don't want to do a long surgery, we want to do a shorter surgery, then they might say, we want to do this under MRI guidance and not use the electrophysiology. Because typically when you do it under electrophysiology, there is a higher level of stress because the patient is awake, A, and B, it takes a little bit longer to put the electrode and listen to the nerves in the brain and get a map of the area that's important to put the electrode in the correct location. But there's advantages and disadvantages. And so, therefore, we have to sort of um, uh, do these things in a, in a balanced manner. Um, so, anyway, we'll have to see where that goes um, as we evolve and we look, get better and better in how we do DPS. Uh, at, at the present moment, the jury is not out as to whether we do electrophysiology and do DPS together or just do electro, no electrophysiology, just do MRI-guided surgery. Okay. And uh, the response for the gentleman last week was very good. And uh, he was saying the, the biggest risk is infection. Could you give a more standard definition of a good response and what the major side effects are? Right. So uh, in the correctly chosen patient, if the patient selection is good and we don't make any errors in judgment in selecting correct patient, the results can be fantastic. Um, patients get anywhere between 80 to 90% relief in whatever the symptom was. So again, what do I mean by that? Um, if you have, for example, medication-resistant tremor and you're undergoing surgery for that, the chance of your tremor coming under control is greater than 80% when you have successfully operated upon without any complications. Similarly, if you have drug-induced dyskinesias and severe on-off phenomenon, you're fluctuating between good and bad very, very frequently throughout the day, and you have a successful surgery in properly selected, carefully performed surgery, it could be dramatic in that you no longer have fluctuations or you have very minimal fluctuations and your medication need becomes much lower. So those are the positive things to look for. The negative things, as always with any major brain surgery, and this is a major brain surgery, there is anywhere between 0.5 to 2% risk of death. Uh, now, one could argue that is a very low percentage uh, compared to, for example, major heart surgery or other kinds of big surgeries where, uh, you know, the death rate is higher. But uh, this is elective surgery. You're doing this on an elective basis, not on an emergency basis. So when you're doing this, it's not a life-death situation. It's more of a life versus quality of life situation. So um, you have to take that into consideration when you're looking at uh, mortality risk. The risks are not trivial, but at the same time, it's not very high. Um, again, in most settings, done well, well in correctly selected patients, very low uh, mortalities there. Now, what about morbidity? What kind of bad things could happen that doesn't kill you, but you still 
feel that you have like quality of life has become worse. The commonest one that in the long run most people worry about is cognitive impairment. There is a risk every time you do surgery that there is a slight increase in cognitive um, side effects. What does that mean? That means you lose some of your memory functions that you previously had. Now, how much you will lose, what percentage of it is going to be important? Is it going to be an important critical area of your brain that you're going to lose? These are all good questions, but we don't have a very clear answer on what exactly is going to happen. We can only say that there is a slightly higher risk. Now, again, obviously, it doesn't happen to everybody. The gentleman who spoke last week clearly did not experience that. So it doesn't really mean that it will happen to everybody, but there is a known risk. How high is that risk? Not very high. It's only about 5 to 10% in most studies. Some studies report higher, maybe 20%. But again, those are um, known risks that we should be aware of. Now, the uh, second commonest thing is a bleed, uh, intracranial bleed. Uh, this happens when inadvertently the needle or the electrode is placed through a blood vessel in the brain, a vein or an artery or whatever. We do everything possible to avoid this. We are very careful when we plan the surgery and we make sure that we look through every blood vessel and we make sure that nothing goes through it. But even with the best planning, there's always a small chance it goes through a blood vessel and causes a bleed. Now, bleeds can be small. Bleeds can be large. Bleeds can be trivial to the point that it's just a little small ditzel in the MRI and it disappears after a few days and has no consequence whatsoever. Now, that would be the best kind of bleed. Occasionally, rarely, it can be a large devastating bleed. And if it's a large bleed, then you would be left with a stroke on one side of the body. How often does that happen? Again, very rare, but it's real. It could happen. It's been reported in, in many patients, even in the best hands, best surgeons, you still could have the bleed. So you have to worry about that. If you get that bleed, then you would be permanent, permanently disabled. Is it a very high chance that it would happen? No. Uh, is it a super low chance? No. It's still a real chance. So there's a small number of people who would get this complication. We have to be vigilant about getting this complication and then avoiding it. Uh, infections can certainly happen. Uh, infections are common with any kind of surgery. And most infections, especially skin infections in the chest wall, where the, um, the stimulator is post, is very trivial. It's very easy to treat, um, very easily give a course of antibiotics, and the redness goes away, the infection goes away, and it's, it's nothing. Now, uh, it's different if the infection happens in the scalp. If the infection happens in the scalp, then it could easily run down the electrode into the brain and cause what we call meningitis. Now, that's dangerous, life-threatening, if that were to happen. And so we, are, we take that much more seriously. So if you have scalp infection, we are very aggressive about the treatment. And typically, the surgeon would take a very close look to see whether the wound needs to be reopened and if there's any pus collection or something that needs to be removed but also get cultures and so on and so forth and determine what exactly is going on. Is it likely that it will spread into the brain or not? And then aggressively treat it. Um, the risk of this happening is not very low because infections are fairly common, um, but usually very easily treatable, especially superficial infections in the chest wall. But infections involving the brain are less common. Again, not zero, uh, but also not horrendously high. Uh, but with any other device, there's always a chance of infection. Lastly, the device is a device. 
So as always, anything with a device, there can be mechanical failure, breakdown of leads, uh, malfunction of electrodes, um, malfunction of the wires that are inside the electrodes, et cetera, et cetera, can happen. And that's just a rea- uh, you know, reality that any device, when you, you, you put it in, there's always a chance that uh, something may not work just as perfectly. Again, the technology has gotten really good. We have three different companies uh, providing uh, um, material that can be used or tools that can be used for deep brain simulation and the different leads from three different companies. Technology has really improved dramatically. Uh, the size of these electrodes have become smaller. The, the surgical techniques have improved um, remarkably from the time when we started doing it. Um, they're more sleek, they're more easy to do, they're faster, they're more accurate. Um, and we also have more options than what we used to have. We used to have only limited options on how we can stimulate, but now we have lots of different options. We used to have only four leads. Now we have systems that allow you up to eight leads to do the surgery and the stimulation. So technology is improving. Overall, the, 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 the technique of TBS has really um, taken a huge leap to technically. So um, even though it's still a scary topic, we're still thinking about an invasive elective surgery. Um, the risks have become remarkably reduced. And in the right patient, the right selection, we really can make a huge difference to patients who undergo DBS. And they can, the quality of life can be tremendously improved in such patients. Good. So um, I guess the way I always looked at deep brain stimulation is sort of like you do with medication that has side effects. If your quality of life needs it, then you, all this side effect potential really doesn't matter because you need it. Is that, is that a good way of looking at it? Yes, I think that's a great way of looking at it. Any, any therapy, you always have to weigh the risk versus benefit ratio. And that's exactly what you're talking about. Even with medication, when we give a medication, we always ask the question, what are the risks, what are the benefits? And we always want to make sure that the benefits outweigh the risks. If the benefits are not outweighing the risks, then there's a problem because then we are risking the idea that we're doing a treatment, whatever it might be, surgery or pill, uh, where really you might be on the wrong end of the sick state. So I agree that surgery in the correct hands, the correct indication, correctly done, can be fabulous. But again, the risk-benefit ratio needs to be really properly balanced. And if the balance is favorable for doing the surgery, we should do the surgery. Okay. I think that uh, pretty much shows both sides of the patient from last week and also the average patient because uh, we didn't want our listeners to think everything's always like an individual patient. That's why Dr. Sue said, talk to your family doctor, your neurologist and get both sides of, of it. Not just the people that had success, not just people that didn't have success. You agree with that, Dr. Sue? I agree completely. I think um, that's where fair balance comes in. And with anything that we purchase, whether it's healthcare or treatment, whatever, we really need that fair balance. And we look for our, uh, me as a, a caregiver and as a doctor, I expect to give fair balance to my patients and I want to give them the lay of the land and tell them, okay, what are the benefits? What are the disadvantages? And give them a balanced view. 
similarly, I myself, and I go to my doctor, I expect my doctor to give me the same thing, to give me the pros and cons of whatever I'm seeking. So um, this, is, um, this is the most fair way to give information to our patients, and that's how they should be choosing their treatments. So I think that nicely summarizes it. The rest of the thing, which is, uh, which is an important, important thing, you know, patient experience, for example, uh, the type of food that's served, you know, uh, do you get a private room or do you get a shared room? Do you, does your spouse get to sleep in the same room, et cetera, et cetera, are important. And it's important that the patient have a great experience. Um, much of what uh, was told about Hopkins is also true in many other institutions, uh, including in Hershey. So if patient comes here, they have a uh, nice parking space. Uh, we do have uh, private rooms available. Most cases, DBS patients are in private rooms. And um, they also um, have, can have the spouse sleep in the same room with the extra bed. It's not a problem. Um, so those type of facilities are certainly available and easy to do. We also have um, in other facilities, not just uh, Hershey, but other uh, facilities in this area, similar type of arrangements. So yes, that's very important. A patient experience and how they feel and go through a procedure is equally important as the medical aspects of the of the treatment. So um, I do agree that that's a, that's a critical piece of the thing. So uh, again, um, I hope this gives a, a fair view, a balanced view of uh, what to expect when you go for DBS. Okay. Thanks for uh, coming on the show today, Dr. Sub. You've you always good, put things in good perspective, and I think we've uh, exhausted this t- subject. And you, could you think of anything else, Doctor Sub? Or you pretty I much think, done? I think we did a great job covering everything. If we missed anything, well, let's hope our listeners point to us, and we'll take it up in the next time. Definitely. You, you have right. a good day, Doctor Sub. Take care. Bye. Bye. <laughs>